social media, the 2020 election, and women voters. Can the Trump campaign close the massive gender gap by winning the digital political wars? This is the Fury Theory Podcast. The Fury Theory Podcast brought to you by EFB Advocacy. We are delighted to have Jackie Plunkett join the Fury Theory today. Jackie Plunkett is a digital media guru extraordinaire. She led account teams for Google in London, on Capitol Hill, and in my hometown of Chicago, the world's greatest city. Uh, she also is a graduate of Princeton University mm-hmm. and NYU Stern School. Now she's a much uh, sought-after uh, political strategist consultant in the strange world of digital communications. Uh, Jackie Plunkett, great to have you. Brad Parscale is the uh, campaign manager. He's the first campaign manager for a major campaign who is not really a political guru but more of a digital guru. Mm-hmm. What does he have to do uh, to make the Trump campaign appeal more to especially young millennial women voters? He's a digital guru. He's also a marketing guru. He comes from a marketing background rather than a political background. Um, So what he needs to do, which he knows, is to segment out his audiences and really engage in in a meaningful and authentic way, which is historically something that the political sphere has struggled with, right? So a lot of the messaging tends to be fairly generic. Some of the creative tends to be fairly generic. And there's almost a, a playbook that is expected when it comes to campaigns. Um, Brad understands that the playbook gets you so far, but authenticity will get you even further. And so what he needs to do is have an understanding of where are the voters, where do they need to get some new voters, where do they need to re-engage you know, their base, um, and how do they keep the conversation, conversation moving. And this will happen across different voting blocks. So it'll be women, um, it'll be the black vote, um, it can be the gay vote, and there are movements that are now happening um, driven by social media that are moving into uh, grassroots, really, campaigns. And tapping into those are really going to be helpful for them for so 2020. grassroots, using digital media to create grassroots. Yes. That's that's fascinating. Tell, tell, talk more about that. So there are a couple of really good examples that I encourage people to look at. Candace Owens, um, Charlie Kirk for Turning Point USA, and then most recently um, on Mark Levin's show on Sunday, Brandon Strzok. Um, The three of them have fascinating movements where they use social media to get support and drive awareness for their particular issues. Then what they do is they hold rallies in person, so be it across college campuses or um, in different political hotbeds. And so they will gather people around, and they're really doing a great job of community building. And so for people who have perspectives that aren't necessarily socially acceptable, right, so sometimes it can be hard to admit that you're a Republican in some spheres. Suddenly now, those folks feel like they have a community where they're not alone and it's okay to have the viewpoints that they have. And so it's that sense of community building that social media is really, really good at harnessing where they have then taken that offline into real grassroots advocacy. Now, talking about Trump, and you guys are chime in, um, you know, some of these folks are kind of double-edged swords. I mean, Candace Owens got herself in a little bit of trouble for saying some stupid stuff. Charlie Kirk is pretty controversial. Um, and Trump himself is pretty – he's authentic, but sometimes that authenticity can be a little bit too raw for normal human beings. Uh, how do you manage kind of those kind of conversations in a way that doesn't uh, – that attracts some voters but doesn't drive away other voters? It, it is a danger, but I, but I think – 
in the longer run, it's really that authenticity where there is forgiveness, right? And so people don't expect you to be 100% perfect all of the time because it, it's not human. And I think there is that human element that makes people feel, well, they're kind of like me, right? I'm, I don't always say the smoothest thing every time. And so there is an element of forgiveness that happens in social media. That's not to say that you might not have to put out a fire every now and then, right? And and potentially re-explain something that was, you know, mistaken or, or poorly worded. Um, but in the long run, as a long-term strategic um, vision, for the most part, there's a lot of forgiveness in that, and they can they can overcome that. So, Edna Belmar, you're kind of our media expert here. Um, how do you feel this all plays into big media strategies? Well, I think that I take uh, a cue from what the White House is doing today that they were not doing as much of four months ago. And what I'm thinking about <clears throat> is the president was doing a weekly address that he would put up on YouTube, and it was rather formal, it was a couple cameras, it was highly scripted, and it really wasn't going very well. I've been poo-pooing it for most of the presidency. And now he is standing outside of the Oval Office in the Colonnade in the Rose Garden talking directly in short, unscripted ways to Americans all the time. It goes out on Facebook. It goes out on Twitter. They're doing all kinds of things that seem to be the marketing of the authentic man as opposed to the delivering of principles or policies or talking points through video. And that's a big change. And I wonder, do you notice that? Do you see that at all? And is that Parscale's influence touching the White House? Do you think that's Bill Shine's entrance there? What is it that's sort of changing the way that they're fundamentally sort of taking a new tact on communication and marketing the man, less the idea? My guess would be it's mostly driven by Trump. He is his own comms director for the most part. Um, and I think that as they kind of grow into the presidency, I think there were certain um, methodologies and procedures that they had to do along the more traditionally accepted paths, and they've tried those. And now they're starting to reach a place where they have earned enough trust with the voters where they can start to do things their way, right? So you have to calculate when this is such an unconventional candidate is now the president. You can, you sort of have to calculate how, how much kind of, of a wrecking ball are you going to be all at once, um, and then how much, when are you going to pick and choose your battles to start doing those things. And so I think it's more of an evolution of the presidency where, you know, it's if you watch his rallies, for example, I mean, he went at CPAC the other day, you know, for two hours, <laughs> um, but it didn't feel like two hours. And, and it just works, and it connects with people. And some people can't stand it, but there's always a conversation, right? And so it's all like the Joe Rogan around it. podcastification of presidential communication. It can go on as long as you want. <laughs> but people love it, and people eat it up. And so I think, you know, that's what, what attracts people to him. Um, and ultimately, that's what it takes, you know, to be successful long term. You know, sh- yeah, shifting to the Democratic side uh, real quick, um, to the 2020. I mean, we're a year away from... Uh, Iowa caucuses, New Hampshire, First mm-hmm. Nation primary, where all attention is going to be there, on the ground there. And what I'm curious to, to know from you is that is such retail politicking. That is door-to-door. That is in the living rooms. I mean, you know, I, I saw it up close and personal in New Hampshire with uh, Senator Ayotte in 2012, and it's it's an incredible thing to, to watch. So how do you how do you square, you know, this 
digital, you know, intense dig new digital strategies that have really come on in the last couple of, of cycles with that need to be hand-to-hand, -hand, door door-to-door, building those communities, you know, in a retail way as well. I mean, do you see it affecting the Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina for that matter, those, those opening salvos for the presidential primaries? It could. It depends. You can use digital to take all of your efforts that are happening offline and then put that online. Right? And, right and show that authenticity. So look at when Elizabeth Warren um, announced that she was going to run, um, and she did that that YouTube video, and she was, you know, I'm going to have a swig of beer now, and <laughs> and was it Beto was, you know, at the dentist or something? Right. Those things don't work. That's that's forced. Pe viewers see that. That then becomes a meme. You don't want to be a meme, um, but what you can do is. You know, follow around even with an iPhone. You know, for for candidates who, I mean, in this case, they'll have the money. But you know, even for you know smaller races, um, you know, you can be followed around with an iPhone, and it's just your interactions with the American people. You can then put that online and show people, look, I am a real person. Look, real people are connecting with me, and that's how you achieve then scale. So you take sort of that smaller retail model, and then you scale that out to reach the people that you couldn't reach in person. And so the smart ones will do that in, a, in a, a strong way. And then, you know, the ones who are trying to be cool on social media will have an awkward sip of beer. Right. Um, and it, it, it backfires. On now, now, we're not against having awkward sips of beer, although we have had uh, wine. We haven't had that much beer. We've had Guinness on occasion. Yeah. We've, we've, we've definitely. But when I, when I sip Guinness, it's not awkward in any way, shape, or form. I'm, I'm very much in favor of that. Uh, talking about sipping uh, Guinness, it's not a good idea to drink Guinness and tweet at the same time. Yes. I, um, talking about Twitter, has the president uh, gained voters or lost voters by his kind of substantial use of Twitter? I think inside the Beltway, you'd say he's lost voters, but I'm not sure outside the Beltway. I think it's one of his best assets, and again, because it drives that authenticity. I think the people who can't stand him tweeting never could, right. and the people who love it, love it. Yeah. And I, I don't, I think that's then where it becomes an awareness and an engagement tool and not necessarily a persuasion tool, though sometimes, right? Sometimes he can bring attention to, um, you know, the, the policies that he's putting in place or the, the projects that he's working on that don't get covered by the media, um, so he's driving awareness that way. Um, but as a persuasion tool, it's not, that's not quite what Twitter is for. But again, it keeps the conversation and lets him interject in the way that he wants to interject. I, I was thinking about this conversation and your point about uh, misguided uh, use of video and, and, and your example of Elizabeth Warren. And I was wondering what your take is. It seems to me that for certain people... They can do no wrong. So uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is like making salad the other night, and it's the same kind of deal. She's in her kitchen, and she posits the idea. There's scientific consensus that the lives of children are going to be very difficult, and it does lead, I think, young people to have a legitimate question. You know, should is it okay to still have children? And, you know, the Internet ate that up. There's no meme there. She could do anything mm -hmm. and make it work. But some people can't do that. Or is it not the people? That, it's the style? I mean, what is it's, it? That's a very good observation. I think it's someone with the youth that, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has. She's used to making videos like that. She's used to having online conversations and Facebook Live. <laughs> it's like Elizabeth Warren's just awkward. Whereas Elizabeth Warren... Very 
hasn't grown up doing that, right? She has yeah. to figure out how to do that, and that's where the awkwardness comes in. That's, that's, that's a fascinating point. I think about my kids. Um, my daughter does videos all the time. She makes videos herself. My son, they do it with their class. That's all part of their thing. I didn't make videos until I came here to <laughs> EFP. Uh, John Easton, you're a campaign guru. Um, what do you think about digital as part of a campaign and how important it is? Well, and, and it's funny. I've been thinking a lot about this as we've uh, been looking at this episode. And, you know, it used to be traditional campaigns, at least uh, since TV has really entered the, the culture of American life. TV has a, has eaten up most of the budget for spending, for uh, voter outreach, and, and as well as radio, but really TV and broadcast TV mostly. And then sometimes you panic and you want to, uh, toward the end, you're in October and you've got to reach, you've got some money and you got to reach. So you buy, you buy everything that's available on cable, <laughs> right. you know, on Hallmark <laughs> Channel and, and everywhere else. And, but that's the way it used to be. And, but, and little more and more and more, again, each, each cycle, that digital piece of the campaign uh, to, to voter contact has, has been growing. So do you think that looking at traditional, I still see that TV eating up, I shouldn't say eating up, but it's a sizable portion of a campaign's budget. Do you see that it's, it's digital has not yet gotten to where it needs to be in a campaign, or do you think that it's, it adequately reflects our society at this point? In campaigns, digital is not appropriately accounted for. Um, There is still an over-reliance on TV. TV plays an important piece, but it reaches a very specific audience. Um, It does not reach a young audience. And so if you look at the numbers, I don't have the numbers with me, but if you look at the numbers at young people who are cord cutters, there are people, there are young people, most of them don't have watch regular TV at all. But if you are a campaign and you're saying, I need to get to those who are voting, Again, TV is reaching a lot of those older voters, especially over 60. So, But not the younger voters that you need to push it over the line for the win. And so that's where when you start thinking about your TV strategy and you start thinking in terms of GRPs and your reach, you have to do that screen agnostically. And so a lot of campaigns will say, well, 20 or 30 percent of my budget is going to go into digital. That's not. That's an arbitrary number. Yeah. No one came out and said that's the appropriate um, number. That number will be different depending on what DMA you're playing in, what the cost of the GRPs are going to be if you look at TV, the waste in TV versus how people are spending their time online. Because it's really video consumption. And where that video consumption happens is on TV but also online. YouTube is very much just like a basically a cable station. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the watch times and how they sell ads against that and who the engaged audience is, that is going to be the majority of the voting block very shortly. Yeah, you know, I, I uh, <clears throat> to the question that you posed at the beginning of the show, right, can, can they fix this gender gap? Can the president make inroads? It makes a lot of sense to me what Jackie is talking about in the discipline of reaching new voters, people who are engaged by media in different means. And one of the things that, that's changed a lot, and this is just sort of the user end, you were at Google for many years uh, as an executive working on huge accounts. Um, I would find that, you know, 
you can watch YouTube, but a lot of people, it felt like to me, weren't in a logged-in position. But when you talk about YouTube as a cable platform now, I have YouTube TV. My kids have YouTube TV. We're necessarily logged in. They know exactly who we are and where we are and what we're consuming and in what quantities now. And so it's like Facebook in the sense that in order to play, you've got to really be plugged in. You're not just sort of window watching. And I think that that is going to make uh, the 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 effectiveness of media in in the digital age is that much more pronounced uh, in in the 2020 cycle. 100%. So yeah, Adam's right. Okay. Yeah. Ah, Adam, um, that was a very long soliloquy by Adam. <laughs> <laughs> he went on and on and on. That's great, Adam. And we're, and we're, <laughs> and we're grateful. I work like for that. But the question, the question, that, the question I want to get to is: the campaign commercials will that work to help close the gender gap? Or what strategies do the Republicans need to close the gender gap from a marketing perspective? Because kind of you've you've done a lot of this. Yes. And how do they? I don't know if they, the traditional campaign commercials work anymore. I would argue that they don't. Yeah. Um, it's very difficult to break through ad clutter. It's all about breaking through ad clutter. So my background was in commercial marketing, right? CPG marketing, and and that's the focus. How do you how do you break through ad clutter? Um, in politics, a lot of the political ads look the same. And then as soon as it starts, people almost have this visual, visceral reaction. They go, oh, no, it's a political right. ad. Skip, next. Um, and so to be effective and to connect, you have to think about what is the messaging and then how are you telling that story, right? And so emotionally connecting in an authentic way is far more powerful than, you know, stating some facts. Also, a lot of the creative, to be honest, is driven when we're talking about closing the gender gap. And this is actually true in the corporate space as well. A lot of the creative agencies are still run by men, and a lot of the, the concepts are run by men. And what we're seeing in the commercial space is um, the really big CPG brands are now requiring for their creative agencies building out their commercials that half of the team be women. Because it's, it's that shared experience, right? It's not necessarily, well, you happen to be a woman. It's more the shared experience of being a woman and then being able to translate that into an effective ad, right? So if you're a mom and you're struggling with making the decision of do I stay home or do I work? Can I be a working mom and still be a good mom, for example? Having someone build creative who's been in that situation is going to know how to message that more effectively than someone who hasn't necessarily been in that position. And you don't see that in the political space, right? So I ran a bunch of workshops um, talking about creative, and the room was full of men. And there would be one woman who's nodding and nodding, saying, yes, exactly, this is what we need to do. These are the themes we need to be touching on. And there would be 12 men who go, no, we just need to you know, be negative and, and bash the opponent. And, and that's what we do, and that's how it works. And it's not working with suburban women. It's just not. The numbers don't support that. Now, I, I agree with you. Um, my question is, is it because the campaign commercials are not working, or is it because they just hate Trump? And and what and the, the the earned media part of this is kind of overwhelming. Yes. In in many ways, and can there be a campaign that helps drive up the support among women who are most likely to support someone like Trump, but maybe don't don't get engaged or won't get engaged? And how do how do you get those strategies right? That it's two pieces, but yes, I think there is making the party more socially acceptable for women so they don't have to justify why they're Republican. And that's because the Democrats have defined what it means to be a feminist. And, you know, if you're you're a Republican woman, you too are a misogynist. 
that's a problem. So right. that's a that's a broader party messaging yeah. issue. There are specific issues that you can connect with women in a more effective way. So tax reform, for example. Um, you know, there are folks who said, well, we, we reached out to women because, you know, we talked about the child, the, uh, child tax credit and the increase in that, tick in the box. Right. That's not how it works. Right. So there are those elements. Um, and then with respect to, to, you know, to Trump, Trump does make some women nervous, but the approach on making Trump more acceptable to women is different than the policies. And so I think it would be smart to try to separate the messaging in that and make the party more welcoming because um, that's the longer-term strategic win for the for the party. It's just as much about the content, and I think that's really what you're saying, uh, if I'm taking like a major theme away from your commentary here, is that it, the platform and uh, the, the spend is secondary almost to just what is the content and how are we actually telling or creating a message to deliver, regardless of where it gets delivered. And those are the things that that probably we're going to see huge, huge innovation in and things we haven't seen before in 2020. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. I think that ultimately the problem with the political class, especially the consultants, is it's dominated by men, has been. Although Kellyanne Conway was the campaign manager for the president last time around. Mm-hmm. Um, and but the consultants themselves are stuck in the 1950s from what John was saying, this idea of just running campaign ads that bash the other guy and bash him in, in the most personal way. That's, that's a turnoff. I don't think it's just a turnoff to, to women voters. I think it's a turnoff to everybody. But the reason why they do it is it's been successful in the past. <clears throat> and I think that that's the, the, the biggest challenge. So how do you, how do you make the case to, to politicians that they've got to change up their consultants? The nature of the war has changed, and so you can't use, you know, the last period's weapons to fight this new war, right? Things move at the speed of Twitter. Polling data becomes obsolete very quickly. Um, and if you look at, you know, the KPIs necessarily then have to change, and so we have to read... What, what is KPI? Sorry, basically your, your key performance indicators. Ah, Fancy ah. word for how do you know if it worked? Right. And if you're actually doing a good job. Um those have changed. Those have shifted. And so um, think about the definition, the historic definition of political engagement and what does that look like. There is a very specific way that people used to engage in politics. That's not the case anymore. And the way that people are engaging today is not the same as the way that people were engaging four years ago. Um, and so there is a bit of a system that has to kind of be overcome because the knee-jerk reaction for a lot of campaigns that I saw when I was at Google going through the 2016 cycle was as you get closer and things start to look a little scary, people go, oh, my God, and they pull their money out of digital and they put it right back into TV. But you're just talking to the same people who are going to vote for you anyway on TV, so you didn't actually help yourself. So a little bit, some of that is, well, if if we're going to die, we might as well die the same safe death. And so we can't differentiate from one another for why we lost, and then we all lose the same way, and then we all have jobs next time. And, and the reality is that that is changing because what it takes to win is different. God, I hope you're right. John Easton, do you think that's right? Well, I, I think that negative campaigning, whether it's on TV or whether it's on radio or in the mail, I don't think that uh, digital media is a safe zone for, uh, for negative campaigning, negative messaging. You know, it's still because, you know, the classic, the prison doors clanging, the, the police lights on. I mean, that is a tried and true method of the, of the TV age, right? But my question is, 
if you shift platforms, and because it's really emerging, digital media outreach has really been emerging more and more and more, and it's been um, getting more sophisticated, does the negative campaigning, the attacks, does that, does that just come onto the new platform in a different way? I My, my bet is that it does, because the uh, opposition research and the hits against the opponent are extremely effective. We may be tired of those ads, but if you got a good one, it's going to be it's going to land and it's going to do some major damage. So the question, and you may not know this answer, but I'm just wondering how that's going to play on these new platforms. I think, generally speaking, if you just take a TV commercial and put it online, you're going to be limited in the success that you see oh, because yeah. the yeah. the story arc is very different, right? So in TV, you kind of build up and then you have some sort of a resolution. Most of the ad formats now are skippable online. And so people aren't even going to see what you had to say 20 seconds in. They're gone as mm. soon as they are able. So you have to flip that story arc, and you have to hit them with the thing you want to say within the first five seconds. Absolutely. Um, yeah. and, then, and it's also very cost-effective to do it that way as well. So that needs to flip. You can be negative, but like you said, what is it? what are the themes around the good ones that work, that really stick? and then scale that out. Because it's really more the, the sort of the traditional, here's some stock footage of some things blowing up, and this looks really scary, or this is a horrible person. Everybody's sort of seen that. Right. So where is the new angle that will stand out and then hit them in the first five seconds with it, and that's how you do negative online. Yeah, you got to be much more creative on yeah. these platforms. Yep. So Barack Obama really was the first Facebook president. He was the one who used Facebook to a great degree, kind of, gave him really kind of a lot of energy for his campaign. I think Donald Trump is the first Twitter president to use this platform in a way that no other president has used that kind of platform before. What's going to be the next platform for the next president? Predicting, is it going to be YouTube? What is it going to be? That's tough. I think YouTube is a little bit of an unsung hero. Sometimes I think a lot of the political consultants forget that it's very social by nature. Um, And it's also an excellent persuasion tool. And historically, it's been used as a persuasion tool, but it can be used and should be used more from a social perspective. So if you think about how many tweets go out with a link to a YouTube um, channel. So YouTube can be very, very effective from that perspective. Um, If you think about how YouTube influencers, right, they will have subscriberships of tens of millions in some cases and how effective that is. And again, it's driven by that authenticity, right? This person is just like me. Um, I do think that given how frequently, you know, Every single day we're watching Trump on TV. Every single day we have, um, you know, video footage of the major politicians with things to say. A little bit, the sense of the YouTube channel and where does that live? It lives across all of the platforms. And Mm. so that's why Twitter is effective in that case because it's just driving awareness and you can get the clips everywhere. Whereas, you know, YouTube influencer, they aren't everywhere and so it's consolidated on YouTube. But that's not to say that you can't then use the power of those audiences on YouTube to then help educate people around what you have to say. But the initial awareness driver will be Twitter. And so it's kind of building that bridge of, hey, you know what, there are some policies that the media did not cover, and you need to know what this is, and we talk about it more in-depth on YouTube. Interesting. Interesting. 
well, it's complicated stuff. You need real pros like uh, Jackie Plunkett if you're going to be doing this stuff properly. So this is the end. Of, this is the end of the segment. We really, really appreciate you being here. This is the most important part of the segment. This is where we're telling people what we're buying or selling. We're going to tell. Start with uh, John Easton. What are you buying or selling today, John Easton? No, this is easy. I mean, I'm buying and I'm buying the Washington Capitals NHL hockey team. Why? <laughs> because they're hot. They are on top of the Metropolitan Division. These are the, the Stanley Cup defending champions, by the way, I mean, just in case anybody was wondering about that. They went up to Philadelphia, spanked the uh, Flyers last night. You can tell by the way they're playing. They're digging deep. Uh, Braden Holtby, the goalie, is uh, just hit his 250th victory, second fastest in NHL history. These guys are on fire. Watch them. They could make a run for the Cup. Jackie, what are you buying or selling today? I think I need more examples. <laughs> we, we totally blindsided you. Like, I don't think we talked right, about Adam, what this. are you buying or selling? You want to go back to Jackie? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I, you know what? I'm, I'm neither buying nor selling. I'm merely taking this time to say that I was uh, heartbroken last night when I learned, like so many people did, that Pat, uh, no, not Pat Sajak, screw Pat Alex. Sajak. It's <laughs> uh, got the pancreatic cancer, stage quattro, and. Uh, yeah, we're going to miss you, and uh, I'm just praying for you. That's all I have to say on that. Well, that, that's a big, big blow. Uh, Alex Trebek was an uh, institution. Absolutely. Someone called him the Walter Cronkite of uh, game shows, Game shows, mm-hmm. and I think that's probably right. I am going to, um, once again, buy the St. Peter's uh, Concerned Father's Fish Fry on March 29th. <laughs> this is the second week in a row I've done this. <laughs> But on St. Peter's Church, on March 29th, between 5 and 8, we're going to have the first annual Concerned Fathers Fish Fry. Will there um, be alcohol? There will be beer uh, served. Um, and I want you all to, uh, if you want to see the uh, critical components of the Fury Theory podcast, including Adam Belmar, uh, John Easton, and if Jackie Plunkett can make it, it would be great to have you there. At the Fate St. Peter's Fish Fry, between 5 and 8, <laughs> Please show up, buy, 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 and buy a lot of fish. And it's going to be it's going to be cod. It's going to be great. Uh, Jackie Plunkett, have you had been able to think about yet what your, <laughs> your buy or sell will be? You don't have to. I really don't have to. I really don't know, to be honest. <laughs> Jackie Plunkett does not have a buy or sell. I probably should have warned her before. <laughs> but that, with that, thank you for tuning in to the Fury Theory Podcast, brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB means excellent, excellent for business. business.